So we're going to begin with true confession time. How many of you, when you read the sermon title this morning, Strangers in a Strange Land, thought of the Irish rock band U2's 1981 album, October? We got the right generation here. Alan Epweaver is not with us this morning, but he also referred to that. And indeed, it came into my mind that there's a track on that album that came out when I was 15 years old called Strangers in a Strange Land. I couldn't resist the reference. And of course, it's also a reference to our Exodus 2 passage this morning, where Moses refers to himself as having been, in the old King James language, a stranger in a strange land. What we heard read was an alien residing in a foreign land. And here I am this morning to share some reflections from the MCC Learning Tour I was privileged to participate in last September to Palestine and Israel, my first time to that part of the world. And I want to incorporate some of those reflections uh, in the context of the here and now, where we are today in Lancaster in January 2017, and also with today's scripture passages, two from the lectionary, and the one from Exodus that I asked to be read as well. I'm curious how many people here have walked where Jesus walked. How many have been to Israel and Palestine? Would you raise your hand? Look around you a little bit. It's a lot of people uh, who have been to that part of the world. I claim zero expertise, uh, extremely limited experience, one trip a few months ago. But I do want to share some of my reflections The scriptures read this morning, Isaiah and Matthew, and also the Exodus passage, all relate to today's theme. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Christ's proclamation that the kingdom of heaven has come near, as we read in Matthew, and has shone a light for those who sat in the region and shadow of death. We sometimes refer to the land of Palestine and Israel as the promised land. And we talk about Jewish people as God's chosen people. So what does it mean to be chosen in the new covenant that we know in Christ? And does it suggest that others, perhaps strangers, are unchosen? If the land is promised to someone else, what about those who were living there already? Suddenly they become strangers in a strange land. So I'm going to invite you this morning to enter into something a little participatory, something a little unfamiliar. As you've settled into your comfortable spot in the sanctuary, I am going to invite you now, if you are able, to move to another part of the sanctuary. If you're on this side, move to this side. If you're near the front, move near the back. I invite you to go, and I'm going to go with you. Take what you have with you. You're not coming back. On the move, moving to a strange new land. How does the journey feel? Don't get too friendly now, keep moving. There's some urgency to this move. Keep on going. Keep on going. Find that place that wasn't your first choice. 
Move to that strange new land. Change your perspectives. All right, people in the middle, let's move. Let's move. So you've chosen a new spot. You're almost all there. As you settle into your new spot, what do you notice? Is what you see different? Is what you hear different? How is our perspective affected by our place? They often say that what we see depends on where we sit. How is even our identity shaped by our sense of belonging or not belonging in a place? So I invite us all to live in that mild discomfort for a bit this morning. Strangers in a strange land. So to our scriptures, in the Matthew 4 passage read this morning, Christ calls his first disciples. He tells Peter and Andrew to follow him, likewise with James and John. And the passage says, immediately, they left their nets, the boat, their father. Everything familiar. Immediately, they left their nets, the boat, their father, and followed him. They've left their livelihood, their families, things as important to them 2,000 years ago as they are to us today. They left places of comfort. They left chosen places, all left behind. Christ's light and the kingdom of heaven drew them to follow into a strange new land where even their identity was to be reshaped. The disciples themselves became strangers in a strange land, though they actually stayed quite close to home. For those of you who have visited Israel and Palestine, you know the distances weren't far, even though people were primarily walking at that time. One experience I had during my time in Palestine and Israel was to learn a term that seems on the face of it like an oxymoron, strange indeed. The term is present absentee. Present absentee. And I think perhaps it's only used in this context. This term refers to a Palestinian who fled or was expelled from their home before and during the 1948 Arab-Israeli war, but who remained within the area that became the state of Israel. Present absentee. In 1950, about 30% of Israeli Arabs, in other words, Palestinians who are citizens of Israel, were considered present absentees. And just a quick little reference to that. Present absentees are not permitted to live in the homes they formerly lived in, even if they were in the same area, the property still exists, and they can show that they own it. They are regarded as absent by the Israeli government because they were absent from their homes on a particular day, even if they did not intend to leave them for more than a few days, and even if they left involuntarily. You can even become a stranger in what had been your own land. Nothing is the same. Present absentees, strangers in a strange land who actually stayed quite close to home. Christ's call to his first four disciples was to follow me. 
What does it mean to us as North American Christians to heed Christ's call to follow him into the unfamiliar? I think sometimes it's helpful to read perspectives of people from other parts of the world about what it means to be a North American Christian or what that looks like from other vantage points in the world. A Ugandan bishop named Zach Niringie has a word about the gospel call to us from an interview in Christianity Today a few years ago. So these are Bishop Zach Niringie's words. We need to begin to read the Bible differently. Americans have been preoccupied with the end of the Gospel of Matthew, the Great Commission. Go and make. I call them go and make missionaries. These are the go and fix it people. The go and make people are those who act like it's all in our power and all we have to do is finish the task. They love that passage. But when read from the center of power, that passage simply reinforces the illusion that it's about us, that we are in charge. I would like to suggest a new favorite passage, the Great Invitation. It's what we find if we read from the beginning of the Gospels rather than the end. Jesus says, come, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. Not go and make, but I will make you. It's all about Jesus. And do you know the last words of Jesus to Peter in John 21? Follow me. The last words of Simon Peter's encounter are the same as the first words. How does our privilege as North American Christians impact our reading of Scripture and our understanding of God's call? Todd and Samantha are inviting us to engage with Scripture in new ways this year. Can we notice how God calls us to follow Christ into the unfamiliar? To choose the discomfort of becoming strangers in a strange land? To loosen our grip on some of our privilege and take risks in kingdom work? Christ begins his proclamation of the kingdom with the call to repentance. It's not all about us. It's all about Jesus. As we enter into a new era in the United States in this week of January 2017, how do we take seriously God's call into the unfamiliar? Christina Cleveland, who was one of the main speakers at EMU School for Leadership Training that Samantha and Todd participated in last week, said in her recent book, Disunity in Christ, that, quote, Jesus invites us to imitate him in pursuing each other. Jesus invites us to imitate him in pursuing each other. And her words again, we represent Jesus well when we, not, when we draw near to other believers, regardless of differences. A word for us today from Christina Cleveland. In the Exodus passage this morning, we read of the Egyptian who helped Ruel's daughters water their flock. Of course, many of us know the story. Our Egyptian here is Moses, a stranger in a strange land. And as part of that encounter, Moses married Ruel's daughter Zipporah. And they gave birth birth to a son named Gershom. For Moses said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. The name Gershom means a stranger here, or exiled, or alien. And the Hebrew root of the name also has overtones of being forced out or expelled. So Moses chooses to name his son Gershom to remember being a stranger in a strange land, a constant 
reminder. In the Palestine and Israel of today, there is a contrast of exile in constant motion in what is the nation-state of Israel. For Israelis, you have the Israeli law of return enacted in 1950 that says that all Jews, persons of Jewish ancestry, and spouses of Jews have the right to immigrate to and settle in Israel and obtain citizenship and obliges the Israeli government to facilitate their immigration. And this law was even broadened to more extended family in 1970. In contrast, the Palestinian community speaks of the right of return, to return to their land and homes in what is now Israel. Israel does not recognize the Palestinian right of return, though a Jewish person anywhere in the world can move to Israel with the support of the Israeli government and become a citizen through the law of return. What does it mean to be a stranger in a strange land in this context? You'll all recall that our congregational scripture for 2015 was from Jeremiah 2029, and it reminded us to seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your own welfare. What do we learn from our time in exile, and how do we understand God's call to that place of exile, even if we've always actually stayed quite close to home? Again, for those of us among the privileged of this world, what does it mean for us to remember our exile and to seek the welfare of the places where we have been sent? Moses names his son Gershom as a reminder. What is our marker to remember our exile? even a chosen exile. This morning we had the beautiful scene before us of uh, the baby dedication, not so much a baby anymore, of Phoebe, uh, walking with our commitment to walk with Margaret and David and Evie and Ben as they raise Phoebe and their family and as a follower of Christ in this community of faith. Margaret mentioned that Phoebe means bright, Zipporah and Moses named their son Gershom, a stranger here. Our new Syrian friends, Mar and Rhonda Al-Mahazne, have four children, and their names are Yunus, which is Jonas in English, Omar, which means eloquent, Salam, which means peace, and Nur, which means light. Not so different from Phoebe. We have Nur, light, and Phoebe, bright. What are the Almahasnes remembering about their exile through their children? You may recall that Nur was just a few days old when they had to flee Syria in 2013. An exile first of three and a half years in Jordan, and now just beginning an American exile from their Syrian homeland. As we begin this new year with the Almahasne family, may we honor their experience of loss support them in their remembering, and walk with them as strangers in a strange land as we carry our own experience of exile. And finally, our passage from Isaiah concludes with the reminder that part of the great light of Christ is that the rod of our oppressor has been broken. And if you read the very next verse, verse 5 in Isaiah 9, it says, For all the boots of the tramping warriors... And all the garments rolled in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. 
What an awesome, awesome image of Christ's peaceful kingdom built on justice. Does that sound like a strange land to you sitting here today? How do you think that sounds to the world's displaced people today, millions of them having been displaced due to violent conflict? Another event this past week to bring us back to the here and now was our annual commemoration of Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Was it a day on for you rather than a day off? A reminder, Dr. King was only 39 years old and a father of four young children, with the oldest being 10 years old when he was murdered in 1968. Did you remember he was that young during his ministry? When he led the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955, he was just 26 years old. If he was still alive, he would have just celebrated his 88th birthday. Making him a little younger than my mother. My mother was born in 27 and he was born in 29. Even the journey to having that holiday as a reality among us was a long journey. President Reagan signed it into law in 1983, 15 years after Dr. King's murder, and it was not officially observed in all 50 states until 2000, 17 years later. Just one little part of that long arc of the moral universe, which Dr. King reminds us bends toward justice. That itself is a story of perseverance in the work of justice. Just yesterday at the Sister March here in downtown Lancaster, one of the speakers read Dr. King's six principles of nonviolence. Principle three says that, quote, nonviolence seeks to defeat injustice, not people. Nonviolence recognizes that evildoers are also victims and are not evil people. The nonviolent resistor seeks to defeat evil, not people. Perhaps a good word for us today. As people of African descent continue to struggle with the history of almost 400 years of oppression on the North American continent and beyond, made to feel like strangers in a strange land indeed, how are we, as mostly white North American Christians, called to acknowledge our privilege and indeed our complicity in this oppression? Can we claim our identity in Christ as strangers in a strange land ourselves as we resist and reject white supremacy, choose to leave our place of comfort and privilege, choose to follow Christ into the unfamiliar world of equality? I hope our congregation can contribute to breaking this rod of the oppressor through our actions this year. One of the moving places we visited during our Palestine and Israel trip was a group called Tents of Nations. Tent of Nations describes itself as a farm project run by Palestinian Christians. Their hilltop community southwest of Bethlehem and the West Bank is surrounded by five Israeli settlements. Their motto is, we refuse to be enemies. Let me read a few of their own words from Tent of Nations. Our motivation comes from thinking about the three Ps, people, place, and perseverance. We do this work so that the people of Palestine and the people impacted by conflict all over the world 
hold on to the hope that they can make a difference and can contribute positively to their societies, even in a very difficult political situation. Using our example, people can continue to resist injustice creatively, positively, and nonviolently. The land is extremely important to us, and we feel a deep connection to it. Realizing this connection has allowed us to stand up, act, and develop creative ways to overcome the numerous obstacles we are facing. These two things, people and place, connected with a vision, have inspired us to stay motivated and working for what we believe in. They have given us the ability to persevere, even though we know it is easier to give up. We believe that we are capable of adding another mosaic stone for shaping a better future for us and our children. As we, see, as we as well seek to refuse to be enemies in our own context, as we negotiate the numerous obstacles we are facing, as our sisters and brothers at Tent of Nations do, we need to also acknowledge that the Jewish community in Israel yearns for peace as well. During our learning tour, we heard four Jewish voices all calling for peace in their own way. How do we acknowledge and own the long history of Christian anti-Semitism that is part of our heritage? Jews made to feel like strangers in a strange land all over the world. And so how can we carry that while working for a just peace? How do we acknowledge our complicity as North Americans in the militarism of Israeli society? What does it look like in the land of Palestine and Israel today to break the rod of the oppressor? May we seek to break the yoke of burden for all of God's children through creative, positive, and nonviolent resistance. And in conclusion, as followers of Christ, that great light guiding us out of our human darkness, we are called to not only welcome the stranger, but also at times to choose the path of the stranger, the exile to release our privilege and join the struggle to defeat injustice and evil, and not people. May we imitate Jesus in pursuing each other into the unfamiliar. May we remember our own exile and walk compassionately with those suffering loss. May we too refuse to be enemies and creatively address oppression in our midst. As God calls us to join Jesus and his disciples and our sisters and brothers around the world as strangers in a strange land, as we hear Christ's call to follow him into the unfamiliar, let us also remember, as John referenced in his call to worship, that today is World Fellowship Sunday, as called by Mennonite World Conference. And I'd like to conclude then by reading a passage that was put together by European Mennonites to commemorate World Fellowship Sunday. And I invite you to join me in the actions. Look at your hands. Please join me. Look at your hands. See the tenderness that is in them. They are God's gift to the world. Look at your feet. See the way they should go. They are God's gift to the world. Look at your hearts. See the fire and the love in your hearts. They are God's gift for this world. Look at the cross. See Jesus, Son of God and our healer, 
He is God's gift to the world. This is God's world. And we will be there for everything under the sun. God bless you and keep you. God care for you. God keep you safe. God fill your life with love. May God radiate the warmth of our hearts and shine through the peace of Christ every day until his world is here. Amen.